0: That was the peak, and it only went down from there. I think it went up and down a little bit, and then the price just collapsed, and I was a little bit surprised, not that surprised, but a little bit surprised because I thought I would, you know, make some money. And the worst feeling, you know, is I ignored my own advice. I went along with the theory of a bigger fool than me theory.
1: Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Today's episode is sponsored by the Women Building Wealth membership group, the complete proven step-by-step course to guide women from novice to confident investor. To learn more, go to womenbuildingwealth.net. My name is Andrew Stotz from A. Stotz Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guests Max Weisberg. Max, are you ready to rock? I am ready. Let's go. Well, Max is a graduate of the American Film Institute directing program, and he co-produced and appeared in the featured documentary film Hotel Gramercy Park, which included cameos by Ben Stiller, Winona Ryder, Carl Lagerfeld, and Kanye West. The film earned a jury citation at the 2008 Tribeca Film Festival and screened on the Sundance Channel for several years. Max's micro budget feature film, Summertime in New York, screened at festivals including South by Southwest and won Best Screenplay at First Time Fest. The film is now available on over a dozen VOD outlets worldwide. In 2013, Max's AFI thesis film, Karaganda, set in a Soviet prison camp, was top five jury selected for the 2014 AFIDGA Showcase and won five festival awards in, ladies and gentlemen, 26 film festivals. Max is currently in the midst of a crowdfunding campaign for the feature version of Karaganda and has so far raised over $130,000 from 155 investors on startengine.com. Max's day job is at Viacom, where he works as a producer editor. His work there has appeared on MTV, VH1, Comedy Central, TV Land, and Paramount Networks. And ladies and gentlemen, beyond his story of loss, he's going to give us a little bonus about what it takes to not lose in the film industry. So, Max, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life.
0: Well, my family comes from a hotel long line of hotel family people. I got out of that business and decided to go into the film business via my documentary film I made. So I grew up being surrounded by business, surrounded by investment-minded people. I decided it wasn't for me, but I still follow the financial news and CNBC and other outlets. So of course, you know, learning about investment
1: tidbits is always a good thing. And I'm happy to be here. Great. And here's an out-of-the-blue question, which is how hard is it to make a successful documentary?
0: You have to have a lot of time on your hands because they can take three, four, or five years. The film came out, and, as you said, in the Tribeca Film Festival, and it got distribution on Sundance Channel, and I thought that was the norm. I thought, hey, this is easy, but I realized a lot of documentary films don't go anywhere. And I've even met documentary filmmakers who worked on something for 10 years, like the documentary about Argentina, for example, and by the time the person was finished, the whole situation had changed and the documentary became irrelevant. So definitely want to pick a subject matter that isn't going to change too much while you're filming because it could be worthless by the time you're done.
1: So it's mm. business. That's it. The time is the thing. I think it, it, I'm, I'm always amazed when I see a good documentary. I'm like, this definitely took a lot of time to pull this together. And then some documentaries nowadays, maybe more so than in the past, appear to unfold over time as if they were started 10 years ago. And then later they're revisited and revisited. So yeah, documentary world has certainly changed a lot.
0: A lot of money in it though. Actually, my partner does docs for Netflix and he does them very, very cheaply makes about a dollars, and $100, $125,000. can turn it around and sell it for over $300,000. They're all about bodybuilding, martial arts, things like that. So he definitely knows his audience before he starts a documentary. And his documentaries tend to only be a couple of
1: months of shooting. So Mm, he has a a business model figured out. (laughs) Got it. Unfortunately, podcasts are not that profitable. All right. Sorry to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) Now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story.
0: Well, you know, it was only about two years ago that the Bitcoin mania had really taken off and there were millionaires left and right and it seemed like Bitcoin was going to hit $100,000 and I was alone among my friends who thought it was a total scam. I didn't see any benefit for it. I was constantly writing on Facebook that I thought Bitcoin would fall and then I attended this event at the National Arts Club about cryptocurrency and it was like a religious gathering. I mean, people were preaching, They were showing up the faith, talking about why this is going to go on, how the dollar had no value, it was backed by nothing, and Bitcoin was the future. And so, you know what? I wanted to be part of the conversation. I figured, hey, maybe there's a chance I could get rich. It'd certainly be nice. So I took $800, and I put in cryptocurrency, $400 in Bitcoin. And what was the date of that? That was in December 2017. Okay, got it. And what was the price?
1: what was the price?
0: At that point, I think it was about $19,000. Bitcoin was about $19,000 at that point. So that was the peak. And it only went down from there. I think it went up and down a little bit. And then the price just collapsed. And I was a little bit surprised. Not that surprised, but a little bit surprised because I thought I would you know, make some money. And the worst feeling you know, is I ignored my own advice I went along with the theory of a bigger fool than me theory, which most people who invested in Bitcoin are thinking the same thing, there has to be a bigger sucker out there. Lesson learned, I sold my Bitcoin for a fraction of what it was worth, Litecoin I think was almost nothing by the time I sold it. But I knew going in that I did not want to put more money into it that I could afford to lose. So 800 dollars is a lot of money, and my wife would never, ever let me forget that I lost 800 dollars. I'm reminded by, every time I want to buy something, she says, "Oh, the 800 dollars you placed it on Bitcoin." So I'd have I owned much, that sofa if you hadn't done that. <laughs> I pretty much lose every argument with my wife now over finances because of that investment.
1: Um, um, so but that may bring rough. peace. <laughs> that may bring peace to your relationship. Now, let me ask you a question because something stands out about that. You were saying that you were writing your thoughts like on Facebook about how it's a scam and blah blah blah. You were you were not. What is it that got you to actually attend that event?
0: I think I just I attended the event because I I was curious. A friend was going, but it just seemed that people who were intelligent were believing this. And that, the idea of intelligent people espousing this philosophy kind of won me over. And also I think hearing about the US debt and the questionable aspect of our own government dollar, which you know we have so much debt in the US, it, it sort of started to make sense a little bit. And my hope was that there was just a huge amount of people, drug dealers, diamond dealers, People who actually had a, a need for this currency, I just didn't really know anybody who actually needed to trade Bitcoin to somebody else, as opposed to Venmo. But I assume you know what? Maybe I don't know. Maybe there, you know. And also, there were hundreds of billions of dollars of money in the Bitcoin system, so there has to be institutional investors, somebody out there putting this money. I mean, it wasn't a penny stock that a few million dollars made go up and down. The, the volatility of Bitcoin is tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars that are feeding this thing. And so I still don't understand it. And here I am,
1: $800 poor. <laughs> so. And when you got the, when you went and you decided how quickly after the event did you actually open up the account? How difficult was it to open up? And, you know, give us a little timeline on that.
0: Well, after the event, I thought to myself, I better, I better check this out, I'll start. And everybody, again, I, I emphasize, people I knew who were in finance were telling me, oh, you should have 1% of your assets in, in digital currencies. And I said, oh, 1% of my assets? Well, you know, $800 is sort of something like that. So I went on Coin, CoinNet, I have more, I swear, no. So I went on Coinbase, I opened, it's very easy, I opened an account. I transferred money the next day and I spread it around so I actually bought three currencies but mainly bitcoin and it and I you know watching this thing is is I have to admit very exciting I mean you would you know one day you would go up 10% the next day you go down the volatility of bitcoin it just makes it so much more exciting then say buying a stock that's going to go up, you know, maybe if you're lucky, you know, 10% or 9% a year or an ETF or something. Well, you're buying so, the
1: future of money. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And, and, you know, you keep reading
0: these stories about people buying houses with their $100 of the Bitcoin they bought years ago.
1: And um, just out of curiosity, the event that you went to how were they making money themselves? Like what was driving them to go to that event? Were they, was it, you know, use this affiliate link to sign up at this particular, you know, exchange and they got some share of that or did they just were there because they were just, they just love talking about it.
0: They just loved talking about it. And, I, and when people were talking about it, it was a religious fervor. I mean, it was people, like one person started to question Bitcoin in the audience and all of a sudden people were attacking him it was like going to a you know a christian summit and somebody saying oh jesus wasn't real and everybody's saying oh how dare you you know i it, it just had this kind of mania about it and i just around me i thought this has to be something these people here are so emotional and there were so many of them there must have been at least 40 50 60 people there And when they asked the room, who here owns a digital currency, most of the room raised their hands. So I thought to myself, boy, I don't want to be the last one on this gravy train. (laughs) I don't see the point. And I figured, you know, I actually was hoping maybe these people are doing something illegal and maybe there is a whole reason for this currency. I don't
1: know. (laughs) Got it. All right. So what lessons did you learn from this experience?
0: Well, I think if you cannot explain what the need is for something – then there probably is no need for it. There's plenty of hype out in the world. And I just, I don't even understand why Bitcoin is still around. It seems like the only time I hear Bitcoin being mentioned is when someone's extorting somebody else through the internet or seizing someone's assets or something and want Bitcoin for a password. So also I think sometimes intelligent people do dumb things and you really just have to sc- you know, cut through the clutter and not follow this kind of mass hysteria and sort of stick to your investing principles, I would say, first and foremost. Got it.
1: Let me summarize what I took away from it and then uh, let me know if I missed anything. I think the, the most important thing that I would say from this story, really there's two core mistakes I would say. Number one is fail to do your research. So, okay taking the idea, going and looking at it. But the fact is is that, that even that, if you did that, may not have saved you because you would have searched out research and the research you would have found is all about the excitement about Bitcoin. So I'm just not convinced that research alone could have saved you in this case. The second one is what we would be considered the, the third most common mistake, which is driven by emotion or flawed thinking and i would say that you know the emotional angle of what you've described is something that all investors should keep in mind that it's it's very common for people who are who are selling their idea about investing in xyz it doesn't have to be bitcoin that sometimes they can be so convincing and overwhelming and confident in their arguments that it puts a level of confidence in you that is only, it's not there necessarily because it is truly a good thing. It's there because they have placed that confidence in you. And I think that always beware of being overconfident about something and that the other person in the transaction has been telling this story a hundred times, a thousand times. They've figured out the hot buttons of the audience. They know what they're doing. And as I say, it's not just Bitcoin, but we really have to be careful in our minds. And I think one of the things that you said is smart people make mistakes with their money. Absolutely. Cause smart people have feelings just like everybody else. So I think the emotional angle is probably the biggest thing I would take away from this story. You have any thoughts about that? Oh, I
0: absolutely agree. I think, you know, actually at the event, I was drinking quite a bit. So I think that might've played, played, played a role. I think the emotion was riding very high. So it all started to make sense with a little bit of booze and you know, some people, Screaming about their feelings and religious
1: okay, so, type atmosphere. So we've got a good, good quote out of it. Don't drink and invest <laughs> yes. in Bitcoin. All right. So let's just say based on what you learned from that story and what you've continued to learn in your life, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate when they're, they're literally in that room?
0: Well, I think you've got to take some time out to yourself and, and sleep on it maybe a couple of nights and let the emotion pass and and see if it, if that investment really makes sense without the emotion. If you don't do things quickly, I think you'll always have a slower and less emotional approach to, to things and how
1: you invest and probably do better off in the long run. Uh, that raises a question. Before you invested, did you talk to your wife? Oh, she was shaking her head.
0: And I... <laughs> I I said oh, oh and I was quoting oh somebody said you have to have 1% of your investments <laughs> I was repeating back the mantra that I had been given I had been converted and bless her heart because she was right and I was wrong and she'll never let me forget it but so I yeah, reason- you know the buzzwords can get to you really hard
1: Exactly well that's why I write I was just writing down what you said sleep on it and then I was going to write and talk to someone about it, but now I think I should write and listen to someone, (laughs) you know, talk and listen to someone. So that's the hardest part. All right. I think you got a little bonus for us, for those people that are listening that are interested in filmmaking and all that. Maybe you could give us a little wrap on, you know, what you've learned and share it with us. Thank you. Yeah.
0: So just to preface this, I work
1: in television and I can tell you in TV, there's a lot of money.
0: Nobody who works in TV goes for, and I do... I can support my family, I won't won't say anything. But of course, you know, I I went to film school and feature films are also very exciting and can be, you know, there are a lot of investments out there. I can tell you, I personally do not invest in feature films and for a very simple reason is that a lot of feature films that are asking for investment publicly tend to not be in genres that export. A lot of people don't realize that now, so much of the money in the feature film business is made overseas. And people who buy those films tend to be teenagers and people in countries where they don't speak English. So if you are interested in investing in a feature film, what I would say is I would look at that promotional material, turn the volume off and see if it still is captivating. Because if it's not interesting without the dialogue, meaning there isn't a lot of action or high level production design or these stars that you recognize, it's probably not going to be a good investment. Uh, now, that being said, I mentioned, or as you mentioned, the start of the broadcast, I am raising money for a feature film on Star Engine," for Karaganda. I know that sort of is inconsistent with what I just said, but what appeals to me about my own project is that, you know, actually the short screen in 13 countries and it's action film. So if you are thinking about investing in a feature film, you definitely want to look at horror and action adventure. Those genres pretty much do better than every single other genre out there. A lot of the independent feature films that raise money tend to be dramedies, they tend to be comedies, they tend to be coming of age stories. A lot of my film school cohorts are raising money for things like that. And, you know, you can lose your money with a lot of these investments. It's not wise. However, you know, there always is a chance that you can make a lot of money. But I would say, too, you know, the great thing about investing in feature films is that you'll go to a lot of events with a lot of free food a lot of cool people and if you are successful people will be asking about your experience for the rest of your life and want to hear you know how are you involved and what did you do and tell me what it was like to work with the stars and so forth so a lot of people invest you know i have, I have a lot of investors and i think a lot of them are just there to go for the experience Great. they want to attend film festivals and they want to meet lots of people so if, if you can afford to invest in feature films it's something to consider But be skeptical, make sure that people have high quality work and make sure that this is something that can can export.
1: Because
0: that is where the money is.
1: And um, I'm going to include the link to your start engine in the show notes. So if anybody listening wants to support this, go there. Now, just curious for the Karaganda, and you say it's set in a Soviet prison camp. Could you just give us the one line teaser or the little teaser about what we should expect when we watch it? Sure. I'll
0: give you the the
1: long line. Vladimir is a prisoner in a Soviet prison camp on a
0: mission to rescue his wife, a journey that will transform him into a powerful crime boss in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn. So essentially, it's a Russian mafia version of The Godfather, similar in tone, but a lot more action, a lot more knife knife fights in it, big fight scenes in the camp, a lot of blood. And we have the same VFX artist who did X-Men 2, Terminator 2, The Abyss, and Titanic. So we have one of the top VFX guys in the world. Our team has produced 14 feature films among us. Most of them are profitable. A lot of them are financed by loans, very high interest loans. Not the best way to make films because you have to rush it to market. And often you really take deals that are not as high paying because you have to pay the loan back. So not the best way to finance a film through a loan. So what we're doing now is we're trying something different in financing through crowd equity. But you know, we met a lot of people and, and it's really exciting and our goal is to raise a million. We're, we're talking with marketing firms. So we expect to raise a million dollars and equity, which will lead to $2.5 million budget. And we've been talking to stars as well. So we have some stars who are interested in, in working with us, mm. which will certainly magnify our returns and our sales estimates do indicate a profit. Um, at, our, at any budget level. So, and these are third-party sales estimates. So, we've done our homework to make a good film, and our name is all over this. So, if it doesn't make a profit, I guarantee you, we will suffer for it.
1: Got so, it. So, there's definitely accountability here. Got it. So, last question: What's your number one goal for the next twelve months?
0: Well, my number one goal is to make the film and to have it in theaters, hopefully, in the next twelve in the next twelve months. But I, you know, I really want to make a profit here because you know, when, when you put your name out there like this, you have to make a profit. Otherwise, it's almost impossible to make another film. And unlike other projects, we've shared our script, we've shared our budgets. And I really just want to prove that, that this can be done. This crowd equity model can work in the feature film industry because so much of the feature film industry is bloated productions. There's so many people staying around. And there's a lot of dishonest people in the industry. I mean, even in film school, I encountered a lot of Harvey Weinstein types who are in this business for the wrong reasons. And unfortunately that's just ruined it for everybody. So then there's a lot of confusion too. I mean, I typically work for Paramount, Paramount Studios. I work on the television side, but people make a lot of money in the film world, but most of that money is never, that opportunity is never presented to investors because these companies are just privately funded. So, you know, hopefully someone can come along like me, and change the model, and we'll be able to essentially purchase our tickets in advance in the form of investment and decide what films get made that way rather than having so many bombs out there where we say, oh, what are people thinking? If the audience can decide before the movie is made by reading the script and watching the short video or teaser or whatever, I think we'll have a much more profitable industry in general.
1: Got it. All right, well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Max, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience?
0: Well, thank you, guys. And be wise and give it a night's rest (laughs) before you invest. There you go.
1: A night's rest before you invest. Well, that's a wrap. On another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our well-fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.